0: I'm Will McHenry, the program associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with us today is Volodymyr Kulik, head research fellow at the Institute of Political and Ethnic Studies at the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. Volodymyr, thank you so much for joining me for this Ponars podcast. Your recent research has focused on changes in ethno-national identities and in identity politics in Ukraine after Euromaidan and the Russian aggression. What is particularly interesting about the dynamics of identities?
1: Yeah, so the main changes I see it is the increasing identification with Ukraine and Ukraine, all things Ukrainian. So it is uh, manifested in uh, several uh, kind of, uh, responses to several questions. First, um, when we ask people who they consider the same primarily I'm uh, giving them options from kind of local to global, Uh, They increasingly identify as citizens of Ukraine and uh, not as local residents, not as post-Soviet residents, not as uh, residents uh, residents of a particular region they are residing in. in. Uh, So in addition to that, uh, they increasingly identify as Ukrainian by nationality, even though nationality traditionally meant ethnic origin in the Soviet uh, practice and discourse. Uh, People uh, increasingly identify as Ukrainian by nationality, even if their parents identify as Russians, and maybe they themselves identified as Russians uh, a couple of years or at least decades ago. And uh, regardless of ethnic origin or language, they uh, choose Ukrainian identity. And more remarkably is that when asked How they identify as Ukrainians, they say, because their parents were Ukrainians. So even if they choose nationality, they pretend or believe, uh, kind of are, uh, led to believe that they did not choose anything, they just inherited this nationality. So because the power of perception that nationality is inherited is strong enough to, to, to lead them to believe that they actually inherited this nationality from their parents. And, uh, in addition, they claim that Ukrainian is their native language, even if earlier they might consider Russian their native language, and even if they still speak Russian as their main everyday language. Uh, that's another uh, manifestation of their identification with Ukraine and all since Ukrainian. So they consider it appropriate uh, to identify with Ukrainian as a national language. And then, regardless of the fact that native language might need their main language, and Ukrainian is still there, not, not their main language. They identify uh, with Ukrainian as a national language, as their language. But these re-identification processes actually change the meaning of these identity categories. So traditionally they meant ethnic or ethno ethnolinguistic categories. Now they're increasingly adding, acquiring a civic dimension. So that's why I'm calling them not ethnic, but ethno-national. So they are partly ethnic and partly national in terms of inclusive national membership. But uh, when they become inclusive civic increasingly in their criterion of membership, they do not become necessarily as uh, civic in in content of identity, what it means to be Ukrainian. Uh, This uh, inclusiveness of membership is paradoxically coexisting with um, uh, ethnic, ethnocultural content uh, in terms of beliefs, myths, and so support for Ukrainian nationalism in the past, uh, support for increasing the role of Ukrainian language. So it's, again, it's this hybrid uh, um, balance or mixture of ethnic and national uh, elements. And that's why I believe it's so exciting about that.
0: Your latest Ponar's memo analyzes the new Ukrainian education law and an international controversy it evoked. Can you explain why it is this particular law that became so controversial?
1: Yeah, it was actually a surprise. Uh, I remember reading that and not expecting originally anything uh, particularly controversial because the law was uh, a long time in the making. It was part of this a uh, rather big package of uh, post-Euromaidan reforms and it was sponsored um, enthusiastically pushed through by both civil society in Ukraine and western uh, advisors and western politicians and diplomats kind of uh, uh, overseeing this the post-Euromaidan liberalization and then all uh, uh, all of a sudden uh, after uh, it was adopted very ne- next day uh, there was a lot of protests on the part of uh, minority organizations, and, more importantly, uh, uh, kin states. So the states uh, seeing them as supporting, as uh, uh, protecting minorities in Ukraine, in particular Hungary. And that was um, predictable to those who, who observed closely the process, but um, surprising for, for, for many others. Because at the very last moment, uh, the language article of the law was changed and it became much more radical, much more nationalizing, so to say, uh, and in this way much uh, less appealing, uh, much less welcoming to the minorities. So the content of uh, the um, uh, uh, content of educational process was ukrainized radically, so the language of instruction uh, in schools supposedly for minorities was not Uh, purely minority language, but uh, increasingly uh, Ukrainian. So they would start with education in minority language at the primary level, then uh, mixed a language regime in, uh, uh, in the middle school and then uh, to the high school almost inclusively, uh, exclusively in Ukrainian with, with just uh, a couple of subjects in minority languages and that's a radical change from what it was before and what it was in the Soviet time uh, in these schools and those minorities who had elect- uh, actually a well-developed network of schools in their respective minority languages seem like a disadvantage now even though uh, everybody else would, would would be doing the same but those minorities uh, which did not have these networks which uh largely educated already in ukrainian or yeah. russian uh, are now not changing much, not losing much, but those schools, uh, um, those groups like uh, Hungarians and Romanians and Russians, uh, uh, who used to have uh, everything else in the, everything, uh, yeah, almost yeah. in their langu- uh, respective languages, are now seeming uh, like they're losing a lot, uh, and their uh, kin states, Hungary in particular, but also uh, also uh, Romania and and partly Russia, uh, are worried. Uh, Early on, it would be Russia, primarily uh, the most powerful uh, protector of its minority and uh, most powerful neighbor of Ukraine, who Ukrainian government would not dare to strongly object to, like would 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 try to accommodate. But now, when you are waging a war, uh, you're not achieving much by diplomatic means, and so paradoxically, Russia is no the main player in this game anymore, and Hungary is. Uh, even though uh, the minority of Hungarians is uh, a couple of dozen times uh, smaller than than Russian minority and uh, the schools in Hungarian language are uh, I don't know, ten or maybe fifteen times uh, fewer than in Russian. But the uh, Hungary is in the EU. Hungary is in NATO. And Hungary uh, pressures Ukraine to uh, to step back, threatening not only to uh, the, to worsen uh, the bilateral relations, but also to to affect the prospect of Ukraine's integration in the EU and NATO. And it's of course a very very painful uh, pressure for Ukraine. But uh, the the point is Ukraine cannot, uh, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian parliament cannot easily uh, accommodate because there is an increasing pressure in Ukraine to increase the use of Ukrainian because if education is in minority languages for minority members, they end up not knowing Ukrainian well enough, and 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 there is a belief that because they are not taught Ukrainian properly, they cannot use it, and they continue using their languages, and they are not integrating, and they are also not um, made part of Ukrainian nation, no no not not identifying with yeah. Ukrainian strongly, as I just explained. And uh, <coughs> this concern is a bit misplaced because it's not the education that's the main problem. Education is already uh, the most Ukrainized of, of, of public domains in Ukraine. Uh, I believe that it's not primarily because of a lack of knowledge that these people are not using Ukrainian enough. It's because of reluctance to use it, because of pressure uh, in many cases to use Russian, because Russian is still the main language of business. uh, Russian is still language of choice for for many media, and and actually for for many urbanists in general, yeah? So they they continue using Russian because they used to uh, earlier, so they they see no strong pressure to to change that. And that's not about education, it's about workplace. And there should be clear norms for workplace uh, to use Ukrainian, uh, easily enforceable, and that would change the dynamics. Uh, But public perception Kind of doesn't see that much of a, a, as a problem because um, workplaces seem as a driven by this game of customer, customers, and, and, and employees and, and, and uh, supply and demand, while education is seen as clearly a state control policy. Uh, uh, yeah. So you, 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 you set a policy and then you, you see it implemented. And then there is more pressure for education and not so much pressure for, for workplace. Uh, which, which only increases the gap between education and the rest of society. So people are, are increasingly educated in Ukrainian, but then end up speaking Russian in, in, in their roles as both uh, uh, suppliers of, uh, of of services and consumers of services. So why why bother educating them in Ukrainian in this case? Yeah. But because it's kind of a symbolic domain, uh, si- similarly as this identification as Ukrainians, education is Ukrainian is part of, 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 of being Ukrainian or perceived to be Ukrainians. But anyway, uh, uh, this is a pressure on the part of society and and, and political class uh, to to increase the role of Ukrainians, so they cannot easily now um, uh, step back because Hungary is unhappy, so there there is actually a a deadlock in that part. But in Hungary itself, this criticism is not only driven by genuine concern about their minority, but also about domestic politics. Because uh, it's not just that you are concerned, but you are demonstrating your concern to your local audiences, to your to your local constituencies. And in, in this way, you're fighting, the, the Fidesz party in Hungary is fighting uh, its um, even more nat- radical nationalist competitors in your big party, demonstrating we are tough on on, 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 on behalf of Hungarians abroad. Yeah? So that's why it is so difficult for Fidesz for, for to step back and for Ukrainian government to step back. That's why it is this deadlock. And Ukrainian government uh, s- uh, suggested okay, let's appeal to the Venice Commission by the Council of Europe, authoritative body uh, pro- uh, providing a legal ex- expertise and, and, and conclusion of what's wrong with this uh, with, with this law and will will abide by its recommendations. But Hungary is not happy about that. That's a demonstration. It is not so, about, uh, uh, so much about protection of minorities. It's also about demonstration of the toughness of this, uh, of this concern <laughs> to, to, to domestic audiences. So we'll see what's happening, but I don't expect this deadlock to be resolved very quickly.
0: At the current Ponar's annual conference, you present a memo about the Ukrainian authorities' efforts to obtain autocephaly for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and Moscow's attempt to block it. Why is this issue so important to both governments?
1: Yeah, autocephaly or independence of a a church is a long-term goal, I would say, dream of many Ukrainian clergymen, but also politicians and intellectuals. They see it as an important attribute of nationhood. It's not just about the church, it's about the nation. So uh, roughly speaking, each nation should have its own church, yeah, and and especially at the time of war, it's a scandal that you, uh, a lot of Ukrainian Orthodox uh, believers still go to churches controlled uh, by uh, by Moscow, yeah. So in this way, Moscow is believed to have a leverage of Ukrainian kind of minds and souls, you know, and uh, they, they they have been they have been. Uh, Uh, pressuring for uh, uh, orthodox uh, orthodox autocephaly for for decades now. But before the war, it it was not easy. Uh, First, um, there is a canonical law and and belief that it should be all done through established channels. So you cannot just claim that you are um, an independent. Yeah, you, you should be recognized in such role by other orthodox churches. And uh, there are some procedures for doing that. And uh, uh, two churches in Ukraine, Ukraine, Kyiv Patriarchate, uh, autocephalous self-proclaimed Autocephalus Orthodox Church, are not recognized by other Orthodox churches. In this way, they are less appealing to even. Uh, those believers in Ukraine who would like to be uh, independent from Moscow, but would also like to be kind of canonical, recognized by others, not just self-proclaimed. And and that's why uh, that part of the Orthodox Church which is subordinate to Moscow patriarchy is still the most numerous in Ukraine, even after the war. Uh, They uh, they have been losing some parishes, some believers, but but they are still more numerous than others. But in terms of popular identification, there, uh, there is again this gap Part of identification as Ukrainian is part of identification with Kiev patriarchy rather than Moscow patriarchy. So if you see the popular figure uh, about identification with particular um, uh, denomination, uh, identification with um, Kiev patriarchy increasing steadily, even though the number of perishing uh, is not increasing uh, uh, as uh, as quickly. So uh, th- the main point is recognition. There should be recognition by, by some Orthodox ch- um, center, and none is better than the Constantinople patriarchy, uh, which is also called ecumenical patriarchy, I mean first among equals. Yeah? So there are several uh, independent patriarchies in the Orthodox world, but uh, Constantinople is number one. Yeah? And so that's why Ukrainian, uh, these self-proclaimed Orthodox, uh, autocephalous churches appeal to Constantinople. Uh, to recognize this, to grant this autocephaly, but also the Ukrainian government uh, supports them. Actually, this uh, uh, time around, there is a unanimous uh, drive for autocephaly uh, by these churches and by Ukrainian president and by Ukrainian parliament, uh, which actually adopted a resolution, special appeal to the, to, to, to the considerable patriarchy. Uh, and th- crucial point is uh, that the patriarchy in Constantinople, the patriarch Bartholomew, are more inclined to, to do this now than a couple of years ago. Because the rivalry become, beca- between Constantinople and uh, Moscow is now uh, deteriorating, uh-huh, yeah. increasing. Yeah? Uh, Constantinople is very unhappy about these um, divisive uh, attempts by, 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 by Moscow to, to, to challenge the Primacy of Constantinople, yeah, and 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 that's why they are ready to to uh, to get Kiev, Ukrainian, uh, uh, a couple of tens of millions believers on their side in this uh, mm-hmm. geopolitical confrontation. Yeah. So it's uh, what I'm saying is that it's not so much, uh, not, or at least not only about the church politics. It's also about geopolitics. It's about competition between yeah. the, uh, Ukraine. And Russia between uh, the West and Russia, and 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 now Constantinople is supporting this Western part uh, against Moscow. And Moscow, of course, is very unhappy about that. Uh, without Ukrainian believers, M- M- Moscow Church will stop to be the most populous Orthodox Church in the world. And 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 of course, control over Ukrainian believers is part of control over Ukraine. So Moscow. Try desperately to block this move, uh, in pressuring Constantinople directly, but also through different Orthodox churches. Uh, Moscow emissaries uh, uh, toured uh, around around Orthodox world. And trying to, to use different levels, supposedly financial, but geopolitical, and others, uh, to persuade them to, to, to vote against. But Considerable uh, seems to, to be intent on, on, on doing it anyway. And uh, in the recent church um, uh, congress, they uh, uh, established confirms their right to do that unanimously, um, unilaterally, without necessarily a green, uh, agreement from Russia or from other churches. And the final decision is expected maybe in October or later in the fall. Anyway, it is reasonable to expect that this will happen uh, until the end of the year and then this church will be established. And the, the, the interesting question is what will happen next, how the church kind of religious configuration in Ukraine will change and how that will affect international uh, constellation of Orthodox and, and, and uh, geopolitical alliances. So it, it seems to be like an interesting topic and I look forward to, to, to seeing how, how it evolves.
0: Fascinating. Volodymyr, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast.